Good morning to each of you. Good to be here. <clears throat> the house of the Lord, I have been blessed by the service so far. This morning we're going to continue looking at the book of Philippians, uh, focusing on the second half of chapter 2. While you're turning your Bibles there, I want to give you a bit of an update on um, some of what I've been involved with in relation to the ADC Planning Committee. <clears throat> Much of uh, our attention has been focused on planning the upcoming assembly, which is uh, coming up the end of January. Uh, and so most of that planning work is now behind us, and I expect the final program will be coming out within the next week or so. And once that is out, um, I certainly want to make that available and, and share that with you all here. I'm looking forward to that time together with the pastors, looking at the theme of that I may know him. <clears throat> Another aspect that I've been involved with, it, or that we as a planning committee, has been with the newly formed missions committee. Uh, and one of the long-term goals of the missions committee is to... Um, establish or there, there see, there's a need or they see a need of, ha, of among, in Europe for Anabaptist churches. And so one of their goals is to establish a base or a hub somewhere in Europe where that could kind of uh, work out of for church plants as well as training. And so Vani and I have been asked to be part of an exploratory trip to Greece to identify an area where a base like that might be established, um, where it would be feasible. And so we're scheduled to leave the day after Thanksgiving to travel to Greece with a number of others, returning Saturday a week later. Um, and so we're going to be exploring Athens and Thessaloniki in particular uh, as potential areas of where that, uh, that work could be based. And so certainly appreciate your prayers on our behalf for that, but uh, also I want to try to keep you all informed of other developments as they uh, come up and so forth as well. <clears throat> Focusing on Philippi, interestingly, was the first church in Europe. As we have learned and as we've been looking at, a small town about the size of Warrington with no synagogue and apparently few if any Jews. And so Paul had this unique bond with these, this group of believers that's reflected in this letter that he wrote to them, encouraging them. And while often this uh, letter is characterized as a letter of joy, which is true, because it does come through strongly in this epistle, really what the central focus of of Paul is, and the source of this joy is Jesus and the gospel. And that really is, is what creates the joy coming out of Paul in this. In the first chapter, we saw that there was a joyful koinonia or a fellowship or connection uh, that he expressed with these believers, not so much because of the social or personal connection, but rather because of their shared love for the gospel and the fact that everything that Paul does is centered around the gospel and uh, his own comforts and desires are secondary to what he wants to do for Christ. And that's what he's challenging us to as well. 
the first part of chapter 2, we saw Paul elaborating on what it means to have selfless humility, where Jesus Christ, well, in, no, I should say, which Jesus Christ so perfectly exemplified. And <clears throat> to be of the same mind includes having the same love, loving our brothers and sisters because we're in the same kingdom, in the same family, being of one accord or in full accord, being united in spirit, having that koinonia connection that is supernatural, looking out or counting others more significant than ourselves in humility, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, and then look, also looking out for the needs, the interests of others or brotherhood. But then Paul challenges them to, or challenges us to have the mind of Christ. And he presents that lovely Jesus hymn or Jesus poem, however you want to characterize it, describing Christ, of his humiliation, ending with his, the cruel death on the cross, followed by his glorious exaltation. And that's all because Jesus was willing to empty himself, he humbled himself, and he was obedient and died on the cross. It was only then that God highly exalted him. And Paul is calling us, the Philippian believers, and us to that as well. So I've entitled today's message, Divine Empowerment. And the text begins in verse 12. He starts with giving now some practical advice, or I, sh yeah, I more specific instruction, and then also examples of how we can do what Jesus did so perfectly. So verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So Paul follows this perfect example of Jesus Christ, laying out his selfless humility in these preceding verses with a challenge now to the Philippian believers. Now for any of us, I think we would say that Christ's example is amazing, is phenomenal, and at the same time, it feels very unachievable for us or just out of reach. It feels like that is so perfect. We can never do that. And yet, the first word here in verse 12 is therefore, in the ESV, the King James would use wherefore. And, and what that means is because of what I just said or in light of the previous statement, so he's building on this. It's not something that he's now shifting gears completely, but he is building on, what, on this example of Jesus Christ. And he recognizes and expresses appreciation for the positive way in which the Philippian believers have responded to previous teachings. They obeyed, not simply while he was present to make a good impression, but they did so in his absence as well. Uh, they continued to obey what Paul had taught them. But then he makes a statement that they should 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I don't know about you all, but that's a phrase that probably catches some of us by attention, and we could even assume or, or maybe uh, conclude that this contradicts what it says in Ephesians 2.8, where it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, or as the King James says, not by works. But here he says, work out your own salvation. So how, what's going on here? Salvation is the ultimate gift of God. We don't deserve it. All of us were condemned to hell because of the sins that we committed against God. And there was no way around God's perfect justice. However, because of his love for us, as we just sung about, how deep the Father's love, and because Jesus, the sinless Son of God, became one of us, a human, and was willing to become the substitution for our sin by giving his life he was that perfect sacrifice on our behalf, allowing us to trust Jesus, um, trust that Jesus took our place on the cross and reconciling our relationship with God. Paul's statement of work out your own salvation is not a contradiction to the gospel. And it's not a contradiction of not by works, and part of the reason for that is the, word, the Greek word that is uh, translated work out. And, and that Greek word means to carry out to the goal or to carry to its ultimate conclusion. Now, one way to think about that might be that when you have a math problem or an algebra problem, students work out they carry that problem to its ultimate conclusion. They, they solve it. And that's the context of this verse. It's not that it's what we do gives us salvation, but rather the context of this verse is the Philippians are being challenged to carry their salvation, their ongoing sanctification, to its ultimate conclusion which is Christ-likeness, which we just saw modeled by Jesus in the previous verses. And so this carrying of salvation to the ultimate goal is to be pursued with great reverence and awe. It says, um, it says there, we're to do this, um, I'm sorry, with fear and trembling is the words that are used there, but we're to do that with a reverence and an awe of God and what he did for us, remembering that incredible gift of salvation for each one of us. <clears throat> and then this is further clarified, this, this fact, this reality, that this is, is not a, a work that earns us salvation, but rather a carrying out our salvation in sanctification. In verse 13, this is further clarified because he says, we're to work out our own salvation for it is God who works in you. It's not us, but it's God working in us that even makes this possible. And here we see the divine enablement that comes 
uh, to us as a gift of God. The believers are to carry the gift of salvation that is now belonging to them to its ultimate goal, which is Christ-likeness, but always remembering and depending on the fact that it is God that's actually working in them. It's not themselves, but it is God that is working in them. And the carrying of this salvation to its conclusion of Christ-likeness is not something that we're ever going to be capable of doing ourselves or in our own strength. It's only because of the divine enablement that comes through the recognition and the realization that it is God who is working in us. And the Greek word, so here we have another, that word work again, but it means even something slightly different here yet, that it is God working in us. The Greek word translated work in this verse means to energize or to work effectively. And it is the word from which we get our words energy and energize. Um, God is the source of the energy and power to become Christ-like. We are not. And it is only possible as God works in us, as God energizes us to be able to do that. I believe God uses various tools to work in our lives, as we're talking about here. Two of them come to mind where he uses similar language. And the first one is that of the Word of God, that the Word of God is a tool that God uses to bring about Christ-likeness in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a word as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And then he concludes, which is at work in you believers. The word of God is at work in you believers. <clears throat> when we read, when we meditate and trust God's word and then act on that in obedience, God's power is released within us. The angel's promise to Mary in Luke 137 is the, the famous phrase, the popular phrase, for with God nothing shall be impossible. It's interesting that in the 1901 English translation in the American Standard Version, this phrase is translated, for no word from God shall be void of power. And I think that that just speaks to the power of God. Nothing is impossible with God, but it's, when, it's God's word that gives power. And the second tool that we can use in that is that of prayer. Ephesians 3.20, a very popular, or a very familiar verse, is now to him that is able to do far more abundantly than what we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Again, it's the power of God within us. Prayer is verbally telling God that we are putting our trust in him for things that we care about and can't do anything about, enabling his power to work in and through us. 
Paul then continues in Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will comes from a Greek word that means more a desire or to desire. It is this desire to do the good pleasure of God that comes from the divine energy in the heart of believers that is surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit will energize and actually give us desi the desire to do the will of God. Not only making us willing, but actively desiring and wanting to do what God wants us to do. He doesn't only energize us to give us the desire, but he also provides then the necessary power to do that, which we see in the concluding phrase, to work for his good pleasure. It's to do God's good pleasure. Now, just an observation here that Paul doesn't come right out and say this, but it seems that he's say, what, part of what he's saying here, that God has to work in us before he can really work through us. And so you might need to digest that a little bit, but he actually has to do something within us before it can actually show itself. <clears throat> Wust's uh, word studies in the Greek New Testament is a, um, a resource that I use at times, and they had a translation for this verse that I found particularly helpful, and so I'm going to just read that here. It's, somewhat of a paraphrase or an amplification of these two verses. Wherefore, my beloved ones, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, carry to its ultimate conclusion your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is the one who is constantly putting forth his power in you, both in the form of the constant activity of your being desirous of and the constant activity of your putting into operation his good pleasure. Continuing in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul now shifts from the more abstract ideas to extremely practical aspects of what Christ-likeness and selfless humility looks like. He outlines this divine expression, is what I've called it, how this shows up in real life, which is the result of that divine energy and divine enablement we saw in the previous two verses. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. First note that this says all things. Not some things or even most things, but all things without grumbling or disputing. And, and there's, so there's no exceptions. But what does he mean by grumbling or disputing? Grumbling is murmuring, a complaint uttered in a low or indistinct tone, muttering under one's breath, behind the scenes talk. It's just kind of, you know, 
venting a little bit. Um, and then disputing is to debate, to argue, to doubt, or question. So Paul seems to be pointing out another aspect of what he covered earlier in this chapter, that of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, in humility counting others more significant than ourselves. Grumbling and disputing will only undermine and eventually destroy what should characterize the church. And so it just, it works against everything within the church. The church is made up of a group of individual believers committed to God and to each other to be lights in a dark world. And to be such a group of people that represent Jesus Christ in such a way that is free of blemish or blame in the eyes of the world. What the world sees is, is attractive, is good. And, and to be such people that doesn't contradict what we say we believe and what we see modeled by Jesus Christ. There's a lot contained within this, but this idea of grumbling and disputing uh, is, is a huge detriment to the church and to our testimony as we see in these verses. Going back to the Old Testament, we can see how the Israelites were frequently uh, characterized as murmuring or disputing, uh, grumbling and complaining about all kinds of things that they didn't like and that didn't serve. And the result is it never really helped them. It never made things better by doing that. It never served them well. And the more that we model this lifestyle of being free of grumbling and disputing, the more our divine expression of Christ-likeness will shine through and will contrast sharply with the crooked and twisted or perverse world around us, which ultimately attracts unbelievers to the light of Christ and the light of truth. Woost also translated this, these two verses, uh, several verses, and I, I want to read the first several ones here, that it was very enlightening to me and just really shed a lot of, he elaborate on what the murmuring, disputing meant. Um, All things be done constantly, doing without discontented or secret mutterings or, and grumblings, and without discussions which carry an undertone of suspicion or doubt, to the end that you may become those who are deserving of no censure, free from fault or defect, and guileless in their simplicity, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a perverse and distorted generation, among whom you appear as luminaries in the world. But the idea, the description that he gives there, the elaboration on the grumblings and disputings, discontented, secret mutterings and grumblings, discussions which carry an undertone of suspicion or doubt. That's not what a Christian is to do and and how we are to act in relation to one another. Then he continues, holding fast to the word of life, 
the King James holding forth the word of life. The use of this Greek, these Greek words in secular doc- documents would often be in the context of offering wine to a guest, holding forth the word of life. And so it means to hold forth as to offer. And so that's what our attitude should be. We should be offering. We should be holding forth salvation to the dying world around us. We're holding forth the word of life. And, and that, is, uh, that is what he's doing here. And then verses 17 and 18, Paul is using his likely martyrdom as a picture of what every believer's life and service should be like, a sacrifice poured out to God. And we can and should rejoice in that privilege as well as reality. So then, in the rest of this chapter, Paul gives two examples of men who modeled this selfless humility and Christ-likeness that, we, that, were, that has described Christ and he was described, elaborating a bit more here, just in these verses. <clears throat> First, it's Timothy. And I've called these the two divine examples. Philippians 2, 19 to 24. And I hope, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will come also, that shortly I myself will come also. So here we have Timothy. He was the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Paul had mentored Timothy and had become his right-hand man in many ways, uh, assisting Paul over the years. But apparently there was no one else who genuinely cared enough for the Philippians like Timothy, or that he could be depended on and he didn't just care, because Timothy didn't just care about those that were around him or things, or things right around him, but he cared deeply about other believers and especially the Philippians. And there's a genuineness that shines through in this. And that's in contrast to apparently the other believers around Paul. Look at verse 21. For they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. So the rest of the believers that were there in the vicinity where Paul was were either reluctant or unwilling to go all the way to Philippi to encourage the church there. I don't know why, perhaps because of the distance, or perhaps because of the lack of Jews there, or perhaps because of the size or the type of city that it was, but it says... All seek their own interests. No one else was willing to go. All seek their own interests. 
So Paul, again, is drawing a distinction here between those who seek their own interests and those who look out for the needs of others, including Jesus himself. So Timothy has proven himself. He's developed in spiritual maturity, even as Paul mentored him as his own son. And then Paul indicates his intention that he's going to send Timothy to Philippi in the near future and also hopes to go there himself um, shortly thereafter, which history records that that did not happen. <clears throat> and then the rest, the verses 25 to 30, is about Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. <clears throat> now we don't know a lot about Epaphroditus, except that he was a Gentile. He was from Philippi. So just think about this. In the next chapter, we're going to see that Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a pedigreed Jew. Timothy was a mixture of a Jew and a Greek. And here, Epaphroditus is a Gentile. Um, and these various backgrounds had no effect or no bearing on the ability of them to become Christ-like with selfless humility. None of that had any bearing on that. And the word Epaphroditus literally means charming. And I wonder how much that is a description of his personality. We don't know. But Paul uses four words to describe what he's like. At least four words, and you may be five, depending how you read this. But he describes him as brother as a fellow worker or companion, as a fellow soldier, and as a messenger. And those are all very different types of word pictures or descriptors of a person. But uh, it, it certainly describes how much Paul thought of him and valued him as a brother. <clears throat> It's interesting, the, word, the Greek word brother, if you, it literally means from the same wound. And so think about that in terms of the church, our brothers and sisters and so forth. But the apostle Paul is putting Epaphroditus on the same common level and from the same common origin as himself a highly educated Jew. He's making no distinction there whatsoever. And that is one of the beauties of Christianity, that Christianity levels a lot of those artificial distinctions that are so often imposed or assumed in various cultures. You know, whether rich or poor, whether you're from nobility or from the peasantry, whether you're educated or unlearned, 
popular or unpopular, man or woman, ethnic differences, none of that matters in Christ. It puts all believers on the same plane and the same level, and it is at the highest level. Ephesians describes as in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The word messenger could be translated ambassador as Epaphroditus represented the church in Philippi to Paul, but, to get, but he's also a messenger of the king of kings, as which is Paul as well. Epaphroditus came to see Paul, brought a gift from the Philippian church and the believers there, but he obviously misses them. Um, he's homesick, we might say. Concerned, and he's concerned that they heard that he got sick, I mean physically sick, while he was away as well. And apparently he was seriously ill, near death, but God healed him. And um, it's just interesting, we don't read anything about Paul uh, praying for his healing or, you know, or that Paul laid hands on him or anything, we don't know. But he was, he was near death, but God healed him. But Paul's eager to send him back to Philippi. But then he makes this interesting statement, receive him in the Lord with all joy. This would seem to indicate that there was some level of alienation between Epaphroditus and at least some of the Philippians. And Paul is just encouraging him, receive him in the Lord. Don't, don't reject him. Don't turn your back on him. Don't look away from him. And then he continues, honor such men. Value them highly. Deem them precious. He nearly died for the work of Christ. He risked his very life to serve Paul, to minister to him on behalf of all of the Philippian believers because the other Philippian believers obviously couldn't be there to help him because of the distance between them. So here, two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, are given as divine examples of how God can powerfully transform men and women from various or any background into selfless humility and Christ-likeness if they're willing to be used in the kingdom for his glory through the divine enablement that comes from the Holy Spirit. In the next chapter, Paul then references himself as a third example of this as well. We're not going to look at that this morning. But in conclusion, I'd like for us just to read this entire text uh, together. Starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am 
to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that, I, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow, fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister in my need, to my need. <clears throat> for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him. Therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. Um, I'm sorry. Um, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Timothy and Epaphroditus are shining examples of the divine empowerment and transformative power through salvation and the resulting Christ-likeness. Remembering, emphasizing, and trusting that it is God who works in us through divine enablement to transform our lives into that of Jesus Christ living in selfless humility and becoming shining lights through the divine expressions to the world around us, not murmuring and arguing with each other, rather holding forth, offering hope to unbelievers of the wonder of salvation. So let's stand together for a closing prayer. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, energize you, enable you, empower you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.